0: Today is the second Sunday of Lent, February 25th, 2024, and my text for today is Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 through 28. It's brief enough that I'll read it to you now, but I also want to point out that if you're going to a church today that's uh, using the Revised Common Lectionary, this is probably not the lesson you're going to hear because I'm uh, preaching these uh, lately from the traditional lectionary, uh, and if you uh, look at the uh, the Substack post, you can click on a link to that there and see what that's all about. So here's the reading from Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 through 28. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and cried, Have mercy on me, O Lord, O son of David. My daughter is severely possessed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying after us. And he answered, "'I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel.' But she came and knelt before him, saying, "'Lord, help me.' And he answered, "'It is not fair to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs.' She said, "'Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs have the cr- eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table.' Then Jesus answered her, "'O oh, woman, great is your faith.'" Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. The story describes a request from a Canaanite mother to Jesus to heal her demon-possessed daughter, and it's saying that the woman's faith is the key to her request being granted. This story comes twenty-one verses into Matthew chapter fifteen, and we need to know what the first twenty verses are about in order to place Jesus' harsh words to the Canaanite woman in context. What's happening here is that Jesus is, in on. A, throughout the Gospels, we see this. Jesus is is in an ongoing struggle with the Pharisees for the heart of Judaism, and this struggle continues well into the Acts of the Apostles and for the remainder of the uh, New Testament. In the letters of Paul, we see this, particularly in the letter to the, a very eloquent letter to the Hebrews, or it's simply just called Hebrews. Uh, some say it's a, a sermon. Uh, and then finally, in the book of Revelation, uh, th- this struggle for the heart of Judaism in the first century, And in the beginning part of chapter 15, this this struggle is evident. Matthew uh, quotes Jesus in an exchange with the Pharisees, in which he condemns the Pharisees for maintaining, quote, the tradition of the elders. And what Jesus is referring to here is likely what's known as the oral tradition. Uh, Some would call it the oral Torah, which was later written down, and what today is called the Talmud, uh, and, and that the Talmud is, is considered the authoritative text of rabbinic, of rabbinic Judaism. But Jesus condemns this oral tradition at the outset, in, and in no uncertain terms. To this day, rabbinic Judaism uh, teaches that the oral Torah was verbally communicated by God to Moses on Mount Sinai, along with the written Torah, which we know of as the Ten Commandments and the 613 laws that are recorded in, in the Old Testament, uh, the first five books, particularly Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But Jesus is saying this oral thing, this oral tradition, uh, does not have the same authority. It, it, it's not true that it was dictated by God to, to Moses and then handed down uh, in secret, uh, through, through, through some oral tradition. I mean, maybe there is this oral tradition, not denying the existence of an oral, oral tradition. What denying is that it has any authority. And so in Matthew chapter 15, verse 6, he says, So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. So that's important. Jesus is setting up a distinction that carries all the way through Christianity and into the Reformed branch of Christianity, the Protestant uh, uh, faith, the, the primacy of the written word over tradition, over, over the oral tradition in this case, the Jewish oral tradition. Um, it's not that it doesn't exist. Uh, it's that it doesn't have the same authority. And Jesus makes that very clear uh, in verse 9, chapter 15, verse 9, that the oral Torah that the Pharisees are so enamored with uh, lacks divine inspiration. He says, in vain do they worship me teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. So basically, Jesus, as a prophet here, is speaking for God, saying, in vain do they worship me, God, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. And those precepts are, are the oral tradition. Now, um, incidentally, Aidan Aden Steinsaltz, uh, who was a, a, a rabbi, died in, in 2020 in Israel. Legendary man. Uh, he spent nearly 50 years translating the Talmud for modern readers, and he, he he translated into modern Hebrew, and there's been modern English editions of it as well. The Talmud is a book or a series of books that is largely off limits to most to the casual reader it's it's uh, difficult and the um, archaicisms of of the talmud made it even more difficult even for even for readers of hebrew so he modernized it and he even corroborates what jesus says about the oral tradition the oral torah he says quote the bible is the record of when god talks to man the talmud though is man talking to god so even even a famous modern day rabbi, a celebrated translator and, and modernizer of the Torah, can admit uh, sorry, of the Talmud, can admit that the Talmud is a work of men. And whatever authority it has is based on human inspiration, not divine. So I hope I said that correctly earlier. Uh, uh, Steinsaltz translated the, the Torah, not the Talmud. He updated the the Torah, the oral, the the oral tradition that had been codified in written form and called the Talmud. He updated that. He updated that. Not the, Not the Torah. Uh, okay, Talmud Torah. Keep those, Keep that straight. So one of those precepts of men, uh, at least according to the New Testament, was the supposed ethnic advantage gained by the blood descendants of Abraham when it came to currying favor with God. We see this condemned in the ministry of John the Baptist, which is a ministry, a mission that Jesus took over and fulfilled after John died. This is what John had to say about the blood blood precept. Addressing the Pharisees and the Sadducees, John says, Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. So what he's saying there is that, is that God doesn't need your lineages, he doesn't need your bloodlines, he doesn't need your ethnicity, he doesn't need you to be descended from a certain man in order for him to be in a covenant relationship with you. God will decide who he's in a covenant relationship with, and if God decides that, decides that the stones are a better object of his affection than the, children, the biological children of Abraham, then so be it. It's a pretty harsh message. No wonder that John got arrested. Addressing the Jewish followers of Jesus in Rome, Paul acknowledges the reality of this blood bond, however, because it was real. It really defined the the helped to define the, the Jewish people, and still does uh, for centuries. Uh, referring to Abraham, uh, Paul is referring in, cha- in Romans chapter four, verse one to the common bond that he shares with his fellow Christian Jews. He, remember, he's writing to a church in Rome that is made up mostly of Jews who have, who believe in Jesus, right? We don't think of it that way, but that's what they were. Uh, so Paul says in Romans chapter 4, verse 1, Our forefather Abraham, according to the flesh, right? Meaning what we would say today, biological descent, ethnic, DNA, right? Uh, Paul is a descendant, blood relative of Abraham. But Paul quickly d- d- disavows any merit in this precept of men, because that's what it is. It's not that there isn't a blood lineage here. It's that elevating that uh, to some some sort of um, criteria for the covenant is a precept of men. And so Paul adds that it was Abraham's faith in God that God counted to him as righteousness, making Abraham the father of all who believe. So the story, back to the story here in the days in today's gospel, the story of Jesus healing the Canaanite woman's daughter is an illustration of this saving faith. By rights, this makes the Canaanite woman a daughter of Abraham. She's not blood-related. Maybe by this point there's some intermixing, right? Because there was a lot of intermixing going on in particularly the northern part of, of the old uh, kingdom of David, the old, uh, his kingdom was divided into two after his after Solomon's death um the northern kingdom was known as Israel and the southern kingdom was known as Judah the northern kingdom fell most of the you know 10 tribes that lived up there were scattered to the winds and then uh uh, different groups of people were imported to replace the native uh, population the native Israelite population and they intermarried so uh you know, the, the, the descriptor of this woman as a Canaanite is, is correct, but there's possibility that she's really of, of mixed blood. But anyway, the point is, that goes, I think, goes to the point that the story of is making here is that it's not her blood that uh, saves her. It's not, the, not her blood that is going to uh, be interceding for her daughter's healing. It is her faith, right? She is a believer, and that makes her a daughter of Abraham. So let's take a closer look at this woman's faith. Verse one, tells us, verse 1 tells us that Jesus has decamped to Tyre and Sidon, which is Gentile territory. So he's not in Jewish lands anymore. And the pagan woman begs Jesus to heal her daughter. Now, at first he ignores her, and he also ignores his disciples' request to send her away. And then he says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. It's pretty harsh what Jesus says here. Um, and he ignores her, which is not how we tend to think of Jesus, right? Come unto me, all ye that are heavy laden and travail, and I will refresh you. It's not, that's not the Jesus we're encountering in, in the gospel today. So what's Matthew doing when he places this particular story in, in this section of chapter 15, after he's recorded the uh, condemnation, Jesus' condemnation of the Jewish world tradition? Well, I think Matthew is using this account of a miraculous healing of a Gentile woman once again, he's using it as as material to discredit the Pharisees. Uh, remember that struggle. We're in a struggle for the heart of the future of Judaism. Different, uh, and, and Matthew is clearly making making uh, his side known. Um, he's against the Pharisees, and uh, he uses the words he uses Jesus' condemnation of of the oral tradition to to take a dig at the Pharisees. So he situated this story. Um, right in the midst of that condemnation, right after that condemnation. Keep in mind, I said this before, but I want to say it again because it's important. Um, All of the gospel writers and Jesus himself are Jewish. So we're reading the New Testament here. We're reading the story of several competing Judaisms. And each one of these Judaisms is vying for the right to be what? To be called Abraham's offspring uh, and to be called the children of God. Right? Because that's what the covenant gave you. That's the status the covenant conferred on you. You got to call yourself a child of God because of the covenant. So Matthew and the rest of the New Testament authors argue for only one of these competing Ju- Judaisms uh, as authentic. They're only arguing for one, the the, 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 the Christ-centered, Jesus-centered, um, uh, written word, written law Judaism. Uh as the authentic Judaism, and Paul later identifies this in Galatians chapter six, verse sixteen, as the Israel of God. That's what he calls um, the the true Judaism, the Israel of God, which is a reference ultimately in, in that in that letter to the church, because the Israel of God means what? It means all the children of God. Uh, and how do you become a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ? And that makes you what? An offspring of Abraham and an heir. To Abraham's inheritance, right? So the Israel of God, according to Paul, are all those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. And that is, according to Paul and the New Testament authors, the authentic Judaism. So now why would Jesus travel to Gentile country only to say he wasn't sent to them in the first place? Uh, why would he do this, especially after a Gentile woman, understandably, comes to him and asks him for for help, and I say understandably here because Jesus has had a good advance team. A lot of his 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 uh, name has gone before him. People know who he is. Uh, they know his his reputation as a healer and a miracle worker. So the fact that he's shown up in Gentile country is a sign of hope. Which and, and the woman, this Canaanite woman, right rightly interprets it ter- interprets it as a sign of hope. Um, and so she goes and asks for help. It's understandable. And I think uh, when we read the story and we understand Matthew's placement of it and what, how he's using the story, it's clear that Jesus knows where he is. He knows he's in, gen- in Gentile country. and He knows what he's doing there. He's traveled there because he wants to com- confront the Gentile mind. And in doing so, he is pitting the Gentile mind against the Jewish mind. So you see how the frame is being set up here? He's pitting the Gentile mind against the Jewish mind, and he's p- pitting the former, the Gentile mind, as a foil to the latter. Now here's the thing, I'm not playing favorites here, and I don't think Jesus was either, because if you read the Gospel of Matthew, if you read any of these, uh, if you read the New Testament, you will see that both of these minds, the Gentile mind and the Jew- Jewish mind, come in for heavy criticism, heavy condemnation. You could even go so far as to say both of these minds are depraved, and that was what I preached about last week, so you can go and look that up if you want. Um, the sermon was was called the The Depraved Mind. Now, in that sermon, I talked about how the Gentile mind suppresses its innate knowledge of God. We, we were born with a knowledge of God. It's, it's reflected in our very being, in the very constitution of our character and our physical makeup. But we suppress that knowledge of God. Now, by contrast, the Jewish mind is schooled from infancy in the knowledge of God, uh, they have the law, right? They have the benefit of the written Torah, of the scriptures. And this is why Paul can say in Galatians chapter 2, verse 15, that he, along with his fellow Jew Peter, are, quote, Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. They, In other words, they've grown up saturated. Their minds have been formed uh, in the knowledge of God. And even Jesus will acknowledge this Jewish superiority, both in knowledge of God and in, and in holiness, right? Because you know God and you have his law and you try to keep it at least you're going to derive some benefit from that and you're going to improve your life you're going to improve your lifestyle the people around you will benefit the the culture that you that you create together of fellow law uh, uh, law keepers will 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 be a better culture for it um, one of the one of the uses of the, the salutary uses of the law of God is to benefit everyone, not just believers. Right? It's it, people benefit from law and and order. So even Jesus, uh, Jesus acknowledges this Jewish Jewish superior, superiority, and he says in Matthew fifteen verse twenty six that it is not fair to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. It's not fair to take the blessings of the covenant, uh, and, and throw it to the Throw it to the dogs. Now, who are the children here? Well, the children are the children of God. And, 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 well, and who are the dogs? The, the dogs are the pagans, the heathen, including this Canaanite woman and her demon-possessed daughter. But this Canaanite woman shares something with Abraham that many of the Pharisees do not. This woman has faith that Jesus can heal her daughter. So let's continue uh, to take a look at this woman's faith. Matthew continues, And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came and cried, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely possessed by a demon. So what do we see going on here? Well, first she begs for mercy. She is aware of her sinful sinful condition, otherwise she wouldn't be asking for mercy. And she does not dissemble or cloak it. Second, she acknowledges Jesus as Lord. Third, her faith is messianic. She uses the Messianic title, Son of David. Fourth, she asks Jesus to help her with a particular situation in her life and a situation that she cannot deal with herself. Isn't, isn't that the case, though, that oftentimes when we finally um, turn to the Lord, it's because we need him, um, right? I mean, it's uh, someone, a preacher friend of mine said the other week, uh, "It's uh, it's only when you're on your back that you finally look up, right? So, we can say a couple things. We say what we can say about this woman is that she's already born again; she's no longer depressed, uh, possessed of a depraved mind. It's been regenerated. Her mind has been regenerated, and we can also say that the Holy Spirit is at work in her, as Paul tells us it must be. Right? I mean, look at what Paul says in First Corinthians chapter twelve, verse three. Paul writes, "No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit." So she's saying Jesus is Lord. She's confessing that she is a sinner. She's begging for mercy, and she's asking for help. Uh, this is the work of the Spirit in her life, and that Spirit has already regenerated her mind. She's a believer. <clears throat> so Jesus rebuffs her. There's no question, he rebuffs her. He, he refuses initially to make any contact with her. And his disciples, who are st- at this point still steeped in the precepts of men, ask Jesus to send this woman away because she's crying too much, and, and that is grating. And, and, you know, and besides, she's a Gentile. Uh, they've been taught. They've been taught by these same precepts of men that the Gentiles are unclean. And they need to avoid them at all costs. And it's bad enough they're entire inside in Sidon, a pagan Gentile country in the first place. Don't make it worse by dealing with with uh, with deranged, uh, screaming uh, Gentile women. Um, and and Jesus confirms them in this in their uh, Jewish pre- prejudice, saying, "I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel." Uh, you're absolutely right, disciples. Uh, we are Jews, and we are, we are uh, su- superior, and my mission is primarily to those of our people who are lost, not to, these, not to these Gentiles. So what happens? The woman now assumes a posture of humility. She's already been humbled, but now she's kneeling. She's on her knees. She calls him Lord again, and she pleads, Lord, help me. Jesus responds coldly, it is not fair to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. To which the woman finally replies, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. The woman is doing something here that no depraved mind, Jewish or Gentile, will ever do. No depraved mind will ever acknowledge that without God, it is no better than a dog. And yet that's, that's, and yet that's what this woman does. She acknowledges that without God, she is no better than a dog. The Gentile mind cannot do that, and the Jewish mind is too busy acknowledging that the Gentiles are, in fact, dogs to acknowledge its own morbidity. Jesus addressed this peculiar blindness, and really the word that he uses again and again is hypocrisy. So he addresses this peculiar blindness and hypocrisy of the Jewish mind in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 3, when he says, when he asks rhetorically, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? That's the, the root cause of all hypocrisy, Jesus says, is that you go and you make much ado about other people's relatively minor sins when you don't see how big of a sinner you are yourself, often committing the same, sinner, same sin you're accusing someone else of, but much worse. What's important to understand here is the New Testament is teaching us that both the Gentile mind and the Jewish mind are dead. They're dead. Yes, they've got oxygen flowing to them through the blood in the in in the in their in their veins. Their hearts their hearts are pumping, but they're dead. And why am I saying that? Am I being too harsh? Well, see to your, see for yourself. See for yourself. Go to the scriptures. To the Jewish mind. Jesus says this in Matthew 8, chapter 22. He says this to a would-be disciple. He says, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Is he talking about corpses? No, he's talking about this would-be disciple's fellow Jews who he describes as dead. He says, let them take care of themselves. They're on the path to perdition. They're on their way to the grave. Don't worry about burying them. They'll bury themselves. You can see that a lot of times when... When a person is about to fall apart at the end, a wicked person, or or even an institution is at the end of its legitimacy or of its of its life. It's long since departed from its mission and its purpose. We see this in a lot of churches. What happens? They start to turn inward. They start to eat their own. They start to attack their own. They start to 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 destroy their own. They they eat their own and then they bury their own. So, you know, the best thing. What is their old proverb? Never. The old proverb is never let n- interrupt your enemy while he's busy destroying himself. Right. That's what Jesus is saying here. Leave, leave the dead. Let them take care of themselves and follow me. Unfortunately, that man doesn't do it. Paul describes the Gentile mind in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, writing, You who were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh. So what Paul is saying there is he's describing the whole former way of living that the Gentiles Uh, engaged in before they came to Christ. And he describes it as dead. And he goes on to list what that was. Fornication and um, robbery and fighting and brawling and, uh, and carousing and licentiousness and drunkenness. You know, a lot of the things I described last week in, in, in last week's sermon—the depraved mind—we look around, we see all that is happening in increasing tempo, and the legit, legitimacy of this of this fornication, this uh, licentiousness by corporations and and government and even churches, and and we we have to admit that our culture is is dead. I'm, I'm not even going to say it's dying anymore. Ten years ago, if I preached this sermon, I might have said our culture was dying. Now now i just go on record saying our culture is dead. It's dead in trespass and, and in the uncircumcision of its flesh. But here we meet the Canaanite woman, and she is clearly not dead. She's alive. And how can we tell? Because she has knowledge. Now, what a mind does, right? A mind creates knowledge from the input, inputs that it receives through the five senses and sometimes from direct communication with God. The, the mind is, is, is created to hold knowledge and create it and disseminate it. So here the woman has knowledge. She knows that, that Jesus is Lord and she is aware of her former condition. And she, she acknowledges, she knows that she was no better off than a dog. However, quoting from Colossians chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, we can tell that her mind was, as Paul says, being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And we know that from all that she has said and the way and the manner that she has addressed and approached Jesus as Lord, as Messiah, and in her posture of hum- humble humility. And so it's her renewed mind that is able to perceive Jesus for who he is as Lord and Messiah. And it is her renewed mind that is effective in interceding for her daughter. So think about that for a moment. It is it's it is only the mind that has been renewed, regenerated, born again, that is able to intercede, to pray. That's really the word we're looking for here, effectively and on behalf of others, right? Any, all this other—anything else is just mumblings, right? Um, th- 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 that when we try to pray and we're not regenerated, uh, that, that's not prayer at all. It's vain and empty repetition and words. So Jesus says, acknowledging the faith in her, Jesus and this regenerated mind in her, Jesus says, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. So what this means is that prayer is much more than thinking good thoughts or positive vibes, sending positive vibes, right? <laughs> or worst of all, my favorite is energy, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send you good energy. What does that mean? right? Well, that's not prayer, and that's not what a renewed mind does. That's not prayer for the renewed mind. That's the prayer of the depraved mind. Good thoughts and positive vibes have done nothing for this woman's daughter. I'm sure she tried that already. But coming into close contact with God did. Now, by now, I hope I've made it the frame of this story clear. I hope I've made the frame of the story clear. Despite Jesus' initial rebuff of the Canaanite woman, it is, it is Jesus that has gone to Gentile lands to confront the Gentile mind in order to establish contact with it and to redeem it. Matthew also means, to, means this frame as a damning and sad comment on at least one version of the Jewish mind. And that's the mind we've been dealing with in chapter 15, so far already, the, and that's the mind that's cultivated by the Pharisees, the mind that is brought up and nurtured by this oral tradition, which, which Jesus says has no divine inspiration and is, and is merely the words of men. Jesus makes contact with the depraved mind, both the Gentile and the Jewish depraved mind through particulars. In this case, we read about a particular Canaanite woman with, particularly, with a particularly sick daughter, this is why an appeal to universal truths such as beauty, truth, and love seldom convince anyone of anything. And it's also why sending good thoughts and vibes and energy doesn't work, right? Because these are bland, vague universals, right? You know, if I tell you that God is love, which is true, by the way, look it up in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, you're going to smile and you're going to say, thank you, that's nice, I know, and then you're going to go about your day. And if you've had a, you know, a cancer diagnosis, you know, telling me telling you that I'm praying for you or sending you my energy is better than a poke in the eye, I suppose. But it's not going to heal you. No one expects it will. But if I tell you, as the Canaanite woman surely did later to her friends and family, that Jesus loved me so much that he healed, healed my daughter and then you go and name her. and we're not told what the daughter's name is, but the woman certainly knew what her daughter's name was. And I'm sure in all the time she told this story to her friends, when she recounted this miraculous healing, she gave the name of her daughter, right? That's a particular. That's that's particular. That's real. That's concrete. That's not a universal. That's not an abstraction. That's something that's real and conticul- particular. And it's, 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 it's particular enough for you to start paying attention to this Jesus. And you might start to say to yourself, what? What specific specific acts of love might God have in mind for me and my family? And I pray that if you're hearing this, that you decide that it's worth putting your faith in Jesus to find out. Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, We know that in everything God works for good with those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. By contrast, the Pharisees put their faith in abstraction. In the tradition of the elders, which when they tried to particularize that abstract body of oral laws, Jesus tells us in Matthew 23, verse 4, that those particulars became heavy burdens, hard to bear. And they, the Pharisees, lay them on men's shoulders. Now contrast, the particulars of man, the precepts of man, the particulars of man without, that lack any divine inspiration, that lack any divine authority, contrast those with the particulars of God. Contrast those with the particulars of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. These are not heavy burdens, hard to bear. The particulars that Jesus puts in our lives are easy and his burden is light. And this this is because each yoke is particular to the disciple who wears it. He knows exactly how much we can bear and he doesn't put us under more than we can manage. Christ comes to us in the particulars of our lives and often confronts us in the very particular sins that have destroyed our lives and the lives of those around us. After all it is the particular sins we commit, not some general abstract sin, right? It it we're not, you know, it's not the collective sin of mankind that we're talking about here, when you come when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, it's because you've come to realize that you are guilty for the particular sins you have committed in your life. The Holy Spirit uses those to convict you so that you do see yourself as no better than a dog, someone who is in need of mercy and of God's help, right? Because you can't stop it. You can't rid yourself of the sinful nature, the sinful habit, the sin you're committing, and you can't make up for it. You can't undo the consequence, so you, consequences of them. So you need God's help. Now, I can think of three objections that the Canaanite woman, if she were still possessed of her depraved Gentile mind, might have had to Jesus calling her a dog. After all, you get called a dog, um... That's, that's insulting, right? I mean, this passage is a little insulting if you read it, if you read it at first glance, right? And it's meant to be. It's meant to sting. First, the woman might have objected that she was not so far gone as to be called a dog, but merely lacking in one or more gifts from God. She might have said something like, "'Look, Lord, I admit I've made some mistakes, but you and I are really not so different. After all, you are a man and I'm a woman. We're both human beings.' However, God has clearly given you many more gifts than he has given me. All I'm asking is for you to make up for what I lack and, in fact, for what I was never given in the first place. You've had many advantages, haven't you, Jesus? You've had such advantages, privileges, from being born a man and a Jew. Advantages that us Gentile women have never had. So in, in this, if she were to make that objection, in this way her request to Jesus becomes one of asking him to give her something that she has been deprived of through no fault of her own, right, by virtue of her birth as a woman and a pagan, something in fact that justice now tells us she is owed, right? Now does that sound like anything that we know today, the, the, the social justice message of today, right? Right. The second objection I can think of is she might have objected that it was unreasonable to call her a dog when she is no such thing. She's clearly not a dog. She's a woman, right? So she might have said something like, um, "How could you call me a dog? Though, though, though I think I understand what you're getting at, Jesus. Uh, here's what I think you're trying to tell me. You're you're trying to say that I've behaved foolishly like a dog, who won't eat the food his master gives him. I see it now, Lord. Yes, I, that's true. I've been so ungrateful. Every day you set a table before me and I never noticed." Or, when you did and I ate and had my fill, I never thought to thank you. I'm thanking you now, Lord. Believe me, I truly am. From the bottom of my heart, I'm thanking you now. Especially now, since I need your help. Now, in the second objection, her request to Jesus is is really what it amounts to is her way of finally accepting. She's going to finally accept the free gift of God's grace that's been hers for the taking all this time. She just never bothered. After all... Things had been going just fine in her life until her daughter started acting weird. But now she understands. It's up to her to take the initiative. She just needs to have a little faith. God has done all he's going to do. After all, he he would never think of forcing or or coercing her into accepting his love. God doesn't do that, right? He doesn't force us. Finally, she might have objected that if, in fact, she is no better than a dog, then what was God's reason for making her in the first place? Right? I mean, this is a common argument. We, we hear this a lot from people, particularly those who have some besetting sin that, that they want to normalize. And now that, frankly, culture and society has normalized. God, you made me this way. And if you didn't want me to be this way, then why did you make me at all? Right? There's nothing you can do for a, for a dog, particularly a, a mad dog. Right? All you can do is put it down. She might have said something like a dog, Lord. Is that how you see me? Need I remind you that you made me this way? If I'm a dog, then whose fault is that? Us Gentiles have been kicked around for centuries by your so-called chosen people. Us Canaanites remember what Joshua and the armies of the Lord did to our people when they invaded the so-called promised land. It was our land first, you know. In this way, her request to Jesus would deny all possibility of contact between God and her Gentile mind. Because this is a mind that has died, and it's beyond all resuscitation. So as I was saying earlier, the depraved mind of the Jew and the Gentile is dead, and that's true. But you can go a little too far with that in saying that, therefore, there's no hope not even the author of life god himself could bring these minds back from the dead and that's i think the third objection she might have made it's one of despair coming from a place of despair there's no there's no hope for me in my besetting sin there's no hope for me in my in my fornicating nature there's no hope for me for me in my homosexuality there's no there's no hope for me in, in any of these conditions lord and and it's it, it and you and besides you made me this way so so why did you make me this way each of these objections had the woman made them not only would have shown the lack of faith, but also the lack of knowledge that are inherent in the Gentile mind. Now, sadly, these are objections that many of us who are Christians still make. And maybe you even found yourself making some of them as you initially heard the story read to you. The first objection mistakenly sees the Gentile mind as fundamentally sound, but simply at a deficit. It's lacking something. Uh, These are the famous dwellers of Plato's cave. All they need from a savior is for that savior to loose their chains and point them in the right direction. What they don't understand is that their minds are only capable of understanding shadows. These people would not even see the real things. So it's not that they're missing something. It's not that they're lacking something. They have no capacity for it in the first place. The second objection mistakenly sees the Gentile mind as sovereign, capable of making free choices that will determine the ultimate outcome of things. Such minds do not know that in in everything God works for good, Sorry, such minds do not know that in everything God works for good, because the God of the Gentiles is happy to leave their fate in their own hands so that they can choose their own good or evil, as the case may be. See, this is the God that many Christians actually believe in. Many Christians believe that God offers to save everyone, right? God offers to loose the chains of all of those cave dwellers, so that they can come out and see the light. And and all you have to do is just give one indication, just one tiny indication that that you want God to do that, and, and, and he will do that for you. Now, the problem with that is that we're not going to do that. The depraved mind is dead, right? There is no sign of life. There's, If you watch the old Brideshead Revisited series from the early 80s, um, or read the book, the, the, one, of the main, one of the characters is Lord Marchmain, and he's an apostate Catholic who's brought home by his faithful Catholic wife uh, to die at home in his estate. And on his deathbed, the priest is there giving him last rites. And and, and he makes a, you know, he makes a very feeble, but nonetheless, it's very clear that he makes the sign of the cross, right? And so that's the classic image of, 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 of this kind of Christianity that thinks you, you just have to give the slightest assent of your will and God will leap in and do the rest, right? But that's, the problem with that is that Marchmain is already dead. We're all already dead. There's not a hint of life, not even a twitch of the finger to make the sign of the cross. And that's who really needs to be saved. It's the dead who need to be saved, right? And this God of the Gentiles, it, it, who is the God of many Christians, is too weak and too powerless to actually save the dead. In fact, he's cruel. This, this, this God of so many Christians, this God of the, of, the, of the semi-Christian Gentile mind is cruel, because even though he sees the chaff marks and the bleeding from their irons, he will never break them open. He will never break open the irons that enslave those people in the cave. His words are somewhat like Pope Francis from 10 years ago. If they love the shadows, then who is this Gentile God to judge, right? Remember, we all heard, heard Pope Francis say that on the airplane. This God of the Gentile mind can only taunt his cave-dwellers, his cave-dwelling devotees, with the shadow passion play of a failed savior hanging on a cross who can do nothing for them. The third objection mistakenly sees the Gentile mind as irredeemable, because in its depravity it has lost touch with God. And what this objection fails to understand is that God, the Creator, can never lose contact with any of his creatures, even those who have died, because... Even, and even those who are in hell. Let me say that again. God can never lose contact with any of his creatures, even those who have died, and even those who are in hell. And that's, and that's true. But this third objection loses all hope, right? And let me say something that, about that for a second. If, if, even though God has not lost contact with those of his creatures who are, who are in hell, I don't want you to think that there's any hope for those, those poor creatures who are in hell. They, they, there's no hope that they can still be saved, right? They are in hell. Part of their punishment is that they will, is that they will know for eternity that God still knows them. And all they want is to be forgotten. This is what it means to be a creature. It means that a creature's entire existence is determined by his creator in the same way that a dog's life is determined by his master. And so there's hope in that, right? Uh, the, the third objection thinks that because uh, we are dead and, um, and beyond resuscitation by any human power, by any power in the universe, does not mean that we are beyond God's reach because God never loses contact with his creatures or his creation. Such a God can save such a creature as a Gentile dog when it is his pleasure to do so. Such a God is, quoting from Isaiah here, such a God is declaring the end from the beginning, right? Here's the whole doctrine of predestination. God declares the end from the beginning. At the very beginning, he knows where the end, what the end will be, right? And all the steps that lead to that end have been foreordained and predetermined. God, such a God, is declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. God will accomplish what he sets out to do. So that was the nature of the Canaanite woman's faith. She had confidence that from the beginning it was God's pleasure to know her and to heal her daughter. So there's an important lesson for us to learn from this encounter between Jesus and the Canaanite woman when it comes to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. This encounter tells us that we must not dumb down that proclamation or reduce it to something more palatable. Jesus is silent when the Gentile mind tries to address him in its own right. When he does speak, he speaks as one speaks to a dog, because that is the correct estimation of the Gentiles' state of mind. But the Gentile mind, and for that matter, the Jewish mind, is not without hope. The Holy Spirit, which made them both, can renew them both. The sign of that renewal, the evidence that it has taken place, is when a person finally calls Jesus Lord, begs for his mercy, and acknowledges the depravity from which Christ has saved him. Amen. And now we'll turn for some to the questions for reflection and discussion. What is the key to the Canaanite, woman, Canaanite woman's request being granted? And the answer is faith. Faith is the key to the Canaanite woman's request being granted. Question number two. Jesus is in an ongoing struggle with the Pharisees for the heart of what? Judaism. Question number three. Explain why Jesus condemns the tradition of the elders. And the answer is because they are the precepts of men and lack divine inspiration and authority. Question number four. Faith makes the Canaanite woman a daughter of who? Of whom, I should say. Abraham. Question number five, all the gospel writers and Jesus himself were what? They were Jewish. Question number six, the New Testament is the story of several competing Judaisms, each vying for the right to be called Abraham's what? Abraham's offspring and the children of what? God. So Abraham's offspring and the children of God. That's what all these competing Judaisms wanted to be. Number seven, question number seven, give evidence that the Canaanite woman is born again and that her mind has been regenerated. She begs for mercy, she acknowledges that Jesus is Lord, and she knows Jesus is the Messiah. Question number eight, both the Gentile mind and the Jewish mind are what? Dead. They're dead. Question number nine, Jesus has gone to Gentile lands to confront the Gentile mind in order to what with it? What has he gone there to do? He's gone there to establish contact with it. Question number 10, Jesus makes contact with the depraved mind, both Gentile and Jewish, through what? Through particulars. Remember that I said that Jesus comes to us in the particulars of our life, our particular relationships, our particular personalities, and our particular sins. Question number eleven: the the three objections to the Canaanite woman, the three objections the Canaanite woman might have made to being called a dog are that her Gentile mind was one fundamentally what, two what, and three what. So there's three objections that she made, that she might have made. The first is that her Gentile mind was fundamentally sound. The second that is that her Gentile mind was fu- fundamentally sovereign, and the third is that her Gentile mind was fundamentally irredeemable without any hope. Question number twelve God the God the Creator, can never lose contact with any of his what with any of his creatures. Parents and grandparents, you are responsible to apply God's Word to your children's lives. Here is some help. Have your children draw a picture of something they heard during the sermon explain and have them explain their pictures to you older children do one of the, one or both of the following count how many times the word mind is used in this sermon quite a lot uh, and number two discuss with your parents why communication is sometimes difficult and discuss with them uh, describe a time maybe you've tried and tried to just and just not been able to get someone to understand you has it ever happened i'm sure it has so have a discussion with your parents about why communication is sometimes difficult I just want to end with one brief bibliographic note. The sermon's title, uh, the subhead for today's sermon, comes is a quote from Cornelius Van Til in his book, The Defense of the Faith. And in fact, the entire fifth part of the sermon, the hypothetical objections uh, of the Canaanite woman in part five, uh, is my reinterpretation Is, is, is and, and draws on chapter six of his book, Christian Apologetics, The Point of Contact. Uh, and so the, each objection roughly corresponds to one of the three deformations of Christianity that Van Til identified in that chapter. The first objection, uh, the the fact, the objection that that the Gentile mind is only missing something, it roughly corresponds to his description of Roman Catholicism. Objection number two roughly corresponds to Evangelicalism, that God's free offer of salvation is available to anyone who will just make the slightest hint of his willingness to accept it. And then objection number three uh, refers to what Van Til calls less consistent Calvinism. Um, The idea sometimes Calvinism gets a bad reputation of of being bleak and hopeless, and and it's because of all that I described that you know there's really nothing anybody can do to uh, to 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 to, to, uh, resuscitate the the depraved mind of of the human human race. And so throughout this sermon, I've tried to expound what Van Til in that chapter calls the reformed position. So that's that's where I'm coming from. Hope you all enjoyed this. Have a good week. God bless you.